How many of you walk, take walks for health or just enjoy walking? Pam and I have been walking for a number of years. Uh, I don't know that I'm any healthier, but it's fun. And um, this time of year is one of my favorite times to walk uh, because people put out their used Christmas trees. Uh, and uh, you've seen those, right? You, know, you just drag your Christmas tree to the curb. And uh, we walk at night, and I've got my flashlight and so I scour the trees for ornaments that, <laughs> that people have forgotten. And uh, in, in 20 years uh, that we've been walking here in Hanford, uh, until this year, I'd only found one ornament uh, that was left on the tree. But this year, I struck the mother load <laughs> and on two separate occasions found uh, ornaments. Now, they're pretty junky, uh, but uh, what a find. I mean... I feel like one of those guys on the beach with the, you know, with the money thing, you know, the, the what are they, the, the metal detector. One time we were in Catalina and I felt so bad for somebody that I actually threw some money down there so that they would find it, you know. But uh, anyway, so that's our version of scavenging. So I've, you know, instead of a dumpster diver, I'm a, some kind of a tree diver, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, so... Uh, you know, I, personally, I think everybody should leave a little ornament on one tree, you know, just for people like me to... <laughs> All right. Anyway, I, I'm, I was just sure you'd want to know about that. I like to share these things with you so now that when you see these trees, you think about me. <laughs> you won't be able to... Th you'll have to think about me when you go out there and you see the tree by the curb. You'll think, that crazy Pastor Gene, why do I go to church there? But anyway... <laughs> We're in Acts chapter 20 this morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Acts 20, we're going to look at verses 16 through 38 as we continue our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through Acts. The topic, the Apostle Paul warns the elders of the church at Ephesus that God's spiritual flock will be attacked by predators. The title of our message, Elder versus Predator. All right, it's weak, but it's good. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray together. Father, we pause for prayer because we require the presence of your spirit to be our teacher. And we want to remember, Lord, that you are here walking in our midst. We want to hear from you as you draw close to us, as you rekindle our understanding of your love for us. Take these words, Lord, and bring them to a place where we can understand them and apply them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Danger, Will Robinson. How many of you remember that? All right, I finally remembered something you remembered. It's from the classic 1960s television series, Lost in Space. The series followed the adventures of a futuristic Robinson family that is shipwrecked on an alien world after getting lost trying to reach the Alpha Centauri star system. The phrase characterized the relationship between two of its characters, the robot and young Will Robinson. The robot took a protective attitude toward Will and alerted him to dangerous situations. And just as a matter of trivia, that particular phrase was only uttered one time in the three-year history of the show. He say danger or different things, but danger Will Robinson one time so you can win a bet. Now, it's become a popular catchphrase in everyday American culture. Now and then you'll hear it on TV or in a movie. How many of you have ever said that yourself in a situation? All right. If you do, it's proper to flail your arms because the robot would spin and flail his arms when warning young Will. You can almost see the Apostle Paul flailing his arms as we read these verses. Well, maybe it's a stretch, but it's a great segue. They are a warning that there is danger ahead in your walk with the Lord. To emphasize the danger, Paul employed two metaphors. He depicts you racing amidst danger and grazing among danger. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, as a Christian, you are racing through obstacles. And number two, as a church, we are grazing among predators. First of all, in verses 16 through 27, as a Christian, you are racing through obstacles. Paul compared his life with Jesus to a race in several of his writings. There are different types of races, sprints, marathons, and long distance come to mind so should an obstacle course. The course he described in these verses was full of obstacles. And so in verse 16, we read again, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. 
Paul had determined to go to Jerusalem and hopefully arrive before the day of Pentecost. He made a tough decision to sail past Ephesus. Now, we can identify a first obstacle right there. It's what has been called the tyranny of the urgent ever since the essay with that title was written by Charles Hummel back in 1967. The danger is letting urgent things crowd out the more or the most important things. The issue, Hummel said in his essay, is not so much a shortage of time as is the problem with our priorities. Hummel saw the secret of Jesus' life and work for God in that he prayerfully waited for his father's instructions. And then to drive his point home, Hummel quoted P.T. Forsyth, who wrote, the worst sin is prayerlessness. And so as we encounter Paul here in this first verse, we see that he had made a decision and he realized that urgency was an obstacle on his course. Remember when we last saw him, he had fled from Ephesus uh, because of the riot there. There was a uh, a thriving church there. It's normal for him to want to go there. He had a message for the elders there, but it was more important that he follow God's leading and get down to Jerusalem, hopefully by the day of Pentecost. And so he ignored the urgent in place of the important. Now, this can be really, I mean, it sounds good on paper. What makes this difficult is that often the urgent is right in front of you in the form of a person wanting you to do something. Uh, and, and, and that is something that seems urgent to, to them. Jesus experienced this. His life is a mastery of that which is most important. At one point in the life of Jesus, they sent him and they said, your friend Lazarus is sick expecting him to heal him either from a distance or by coming. And Jesus delayed coming until Lazarus had died. And then later he would say it was for the glory of God. And so Jesus never pressed by that which was urgent because of his prayer life and his intimacy with the Father always did that which was most important. And so if we are going to get through the obstacle course of our life, we're going to have to learn that lesson. We're going to have to hurdle it with prayer. We're going to have to become a prayerful people. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews." The elders were the spiritual leaders of the church at Ephesus. The term elder indicates their Christian maturity and character. In a moment, they're going to be called both overseers and shepherds. Overseer generally describes their role. Shepherd, derived from the word for pastor, describes their responsibility in the church. Now, obstacle number two is mentioned here, and it is the word we hate, trials. In Paul's case, the trials were the plotting of the Jews against him. And we read earlier in this narrative, uh, in the book of Acts, they were plotting even to kill him. And so these were severe trials. He said the trials were so severe that they evoked many tears from him. I don't know if you think about the Apostle Paul, he cries a lot in this passage. And he said that the trials were so severe Uh, I mean, imagine you're trying to book passage on a ship to take you back to the Holy Land so that you can 
uh, you know, celebrate the feast of uh, Passover, maybe Pentecost, if you can get there on time, and then you find out that there are other Jews, men you don't even know who want to kill you for what you believe, when what you believe is that which would set them free and save them for eternity. And Paul was driven to tears. He cried over it, and not just for himself. No matter what, these trials did not knock him off his course. He just went around them or through them. Your course will include trials. You stay on course by going through them here with all humility, it says. Humility here means you humble yourself to submit to the Lord, understanding that the trials on your course have been personally designed for you by a loving and faithful Savior. Some of you like to golf. Uh, I golfed five or six times in my life when I was a young man. Great game, love it. I just never, well, you wouldn't want to golf with me. Uh, let me just put it that way. Uh, just, I'd have to have a megaphone shout four all the time. You know, I just never really got the hang of it. I settled for racquetball where you could hit somebody else with the ball and it wasn't any big deal. In fact, you try to hit people with the ball in racquetball. Uh, anyway, uh, golf courses. If you're an avid golfer, uh, you, you can probably name to me several courses that were designed custom designed by famous golfers, Jack Nicholson, Arnold Palmer, Lee Trevino, you know what era I studied golf in. Uh, that, did I say Jack Nicholson? He plays golf, doesn't he? <laughs> Thank you for that correction, brother. Uh, the greatest slip of the tongue of all time, is this time out from our message, I have to tell you, this is a pastor who I respect. He was giving a message, it wasn't me, he's giving a message and he started talking about Pluto, the, uh, the philosopher. And he kept mentioning Pluto all the time. People were laughing until finally he said, look, I'm not talking about Pluto, the dog. I'm talking about Pluto, the philosopher. Because he, at least, at least I know my mistake. Uh, and uh, so Jack Nicholas and uh, Arnold Palmer and Lee Trevino, who designed golf courses, they're custom designed. And, and the, the idea here is we're talking about the obstacle course your life being like an obstacle course, it is a custom-designed obstacle course. The obstacles are there by God's design to bring Him glory and you the greatest good. And so trials, sometimes they feel like a wall that you hit, don't they? You know, you're, you're moving forward and, and all of a sudden you hit the wall. Well, it's a wall that God wants you to climb over. You've seen all those famous, you know, um, training movies where, you know, it's military or paramilitary, and there's always a wall you have to get over. And there's always one guy or gal that just can't make it over the wall. And, and, and you know, you either help them or you give them steroids or anyway, you get them over the wall. And, because you've got to get over the wall. You can't just go around. You can't say, well, I'm never going to get over that wall, so just, I'll just go ahead and, and be a pilot. You don't need, I don't need to climb a wall to be in the cockpit, do I? Apparently you do. Uh, and so uh, we have to get over that wall. So when you hit the wall, it's a trial. The Lord is there to help you get over it. Don't let it become an obstacle. There are people, you know them, who encounter a trial, a serious or severe trial in their walk with the Lord, and that's as far as they ever really get in their growth and in their maturity. Whether through bitterness or unforgiveness or resentment or whatever you would call it, the trial just knocks them back and they never get over it, they never get through it. Uh, and it's a sad thing because it's there 
uh, for us to count it all joy and for the Lord to help us. And so in verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Jack Nicholas uh, that uh, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Just want to make sure you're still with me. Paul was called by God to preach and teach repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a summary of the gospel, the good news of salvation. Now, at least two more obstacles can be identified in these comments. First of all, you remember he got kicked out of the local synagogues. He overcame it as an obstacle, kept on his course by teaching publicly and from house to house. So in Ephesus, they kicked him out of the synagogue. He went next door to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he lectured there every day for two years, he said. And then if necessary, he would go from house to house. We know from other portions of Scripture, Paul uh, preached publicly. And so he wasn't going to get... Uh, hindered by this obstacle. Another obstacle, we don't often think about it because we're not in that first culture, but he said his audience was both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. And there was a huge cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. Jews really didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles, and Gentiles uh, had this anti-Semitism going on, and it was very difficult to be in both of those worlds. And yet Paul wanted to minister to the Jew first and to the Greek, and he had to overcome that obstacle. And in other portions of Scripture, he says he did it by becoming all things to all men. I think a lot of us would just specialize. You know, we live in an era, a time of specialization. And I'm happy for it because there's so much knowledge out there. You really need a specialist. Uh, you know, you, you, if you, especially in the medical field, uh, you know, you want that specialist who really knows what he's doing and he's talking about. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the ministry, you can't really just specialize. And, and certainly Paul couldn't. He had to be a Greek to the Greeks and a Jew to the Jews. And, and it got him criticized a lot. It still gets him criticized. If you read Bible commentaries, commentators love to criticize the Apostle Paul for being too Jewish. Here in this section, they say he was wrong to want to go to Jerusalem because of the many warnings that he had about what awaited him there. And we'll see as we continue in our studies that he's arrested there, and it begins about a three-year journey to Rome under uh, Roman arrest. And then they criticize him for not breaking completely from Judaism. Paul, I think, would say, I've become a Jew to the Jew that I might win the Jew. Uh, he wasn't going back into legalism. He didn't think that you were saved by keeping the law, but he was willing to do whatever it took short of giving up his convictions in order to be in a place to minister to the Jews. And, and that cultural difficulties and obstacles are a huge obstacle that sometimes need to be overcome. Sometimes in our own lives, and I, I hate to mention this, and, and we'll all have to listen to our own hearts, uh, I know I grew up in a very bigoted, prejudiced home, uh, and I'd like to think I have no prejudices whatsoever, and I know that in Christ I don't. Uh, you know, everyone is the same, but I wonder sometimes how much of my thinking is still affected by my early upbringing and uh, some of the terrible things that I would hear. And some of you know what I'm talking about just as different ethnicities and, and groups are, are you know, just despised by certain individuals. Uh, and so it can be very sad. We need to get over that 
and see people the way Christ sees them as the human race. You know, there's only one race, the human race. There are different ethnicities, different nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, but we're all those for whom Christ died and sometimes we need to get over those kinds of things. Now in verse 22, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And so everywhere Paul went along this trip, there was a word of knowledge or prophecy that they would say, Paul, you know when you get to Jerusalem, chains and tribulations await you. Now, the Holy Spirit wasn't telling him to not go, just telling him what he could expect. Would you have gone to Jerusalem? I don't know. If I go to, a, if I go to Wednesday Night Ignite and somebody has a prophecy for me and says, hey, if you go you know, over here, you're going to you know, this terrible thing is going to happen to you, hey, thanks, I'll just go somewhere else. I'll go in a completely opposite direction. But Paul had a previous leading to get to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit wasn't telling him not to go, just telling him what was going to happen. The obstacle we would identify here, perhaps, is fear. But Paul had a greater fear of the Lord and therefore was able to stay on course. I think in many cases, Christians have lost the fear of the Lord. I know I encounter this a lot in marriage counseling. When couples come in or individuals come in and they have gotten to a point, a terrible point, it's a sad point, I, I can empathize with it where the marriage seems to be breaking up and there's, there's no love and you know all of those kinds of things. But there's no biblical grounds for divorce. There's been no physical adultery, there, there's no real grounds for the divorce, and yet a person or both of them will say, we don't care, we're gonna get a divorce, God will forgive us, we'll go on with our life, we'll, it'll be better off. Paul the Apostle would say to something like that, God forbid that you would even think that about your father, that, that you can just do whatever you want with no fear of the Lord, knowing that he will forgive you in his grace and mercy down the line. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of areas of our life where I think sometimes we want to put our relationship with God a little bit on hold. Well, Lord, I know what the right thing to do is. Sometimes I'll ask people in a situation, what would you tell somebody else? Well, I'd tell them this. Why don't you do that? I can't, don't want to. I want to get through this and then I'll start walking with the Lord. We need to renew in our hearts a fear of the Lord. I'd rather have somebody say, look, Gene, I would rather get divorced. What is really, I want to get a divorce. I don't love my wife. I don't love my husband. But God must know better than me because he hasn't, there's no grounds for it. And so I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to fear the Lord and see what he will do in this situation. Amen to that. Skip verse 24 for a moment and look at verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. There's a sadness you can almost feel as you read this. I was going to say there's a palpable sadness, but I don't know really what that means. I think it's the appropriate phrase somewhere in the back of my mind that isn't affected by the, all the drugs I took. There's, there's the word palpable. That kind of strong emotion can be an obstacle. It can halt you along your course as you give in to personal desires rather than press forward with the Lord. I mean, you, Paul could just as easily have said, you know, I love it here in Ephesus. I love you. 
uh, I'm going to just look at the emotion that we have with each other. This must be where the Lord wants me. The fact that the Lord's given us emotion, made us emotional, he gives us these feelings. We're a people that walk by faith and not by feelings. We are led by the Holy Spirit and we need to live above our feelings and not uh, let them become an obstacle. And so in verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. If someone died without knowing Jesus, it was not because Paul had slacked off in his mission or ministry. It was on account of their own rejection of the Lord's free offer of salvation. One obstacle we could discuss here is the hardness of hearts among those whom you serve the Lord as his missionary. Maybe in your family or in your friends or at work, there are those you've been ministering to and their hearts are just so hard. You've been warning them or you want to tell them more about the Lord and they're not listening. It, it does become an obstacle. It, it, it's, a, it's difficult, uh, but we need to press through that and continue to minister. And so I think you get the idea. These are just a few obstacles that I can identify. You can identify more from these verses. And it teaches us that one of the races we are in is going to be an obstacle course. But take heart. We're going to read back in verse 24. None of these things move me, nor do I count myself dear, my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Sprinters end gasping for breath. Marathon runners often collapse just past the finish. Long distance and obstacle courses can leave you fatigued and with a variety of injuries. Still, a dedicated runner finishes his or her course. Remember that scene in Chariots of Fire? I mean, I have to watch it every time it's on, where Eric Little is running and they knock him down, and it seems like 10 minutes later he gets up, and then he starts running, and his head goes up, and I mean, he just cranks on those guys you know he just beats them all and then at the end I thought he was really dead you know I thought the actor had really died because he just collapsed I mean it just that's the kind of running that Paul is talking about that's the kind of sprinting that's the kind of marathon that's the kind of long distance that's the kind of obstacle course one thing I like about obstacle courses a lot of times they're timed aren't they you have to get through it in a certain period of time. And I mean, you're just going for it. You're hitting the wall. You're over the wall. You're through the bog, rope course, you know, whatever it is. And, and a dedicated runner finishes that course. How much more should we press on for the Lord? The key is to not count your life dear to yourself. Not a death wish. I think Paul had in mind the idea that your life is not your own. Don't count it as something dear to hold on to for yourself. It belongs to Jesus Christ. In this text, he says that the church has been purchased by his blood. And so you belong to him, and you are dear to the Lord. You are his betrothed. You are his beloved. And he has designed this course for you. He is waiting at the end of it. He is the finish line in our course. He's promised to complete the work he has begun in you, and that is why you will finish with joy. Now, in verses 28 through 38, we learn that as a church, we are grazing among predators. The metaphor changes from racing to grazing. 
Paul presented the church as God's flock of sheep and the elders he was addressing as its overseers and shepherds. And so in verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Just a moment to talk about the high place that the church has in the mind and heart of God. Uh, there's a, a bunch of theology in this verse that we're going to pass over, but just let me mention, we read here, the church is not just a gathering of people by their choice for their own benefit. It is a place where those whom God has purchased with his blood come together. And then there's a whole other tangent there. How is it that God purchased us with his blood only if Jesus Christ is God in human flesh? So there's a lot going on in this verse. Then the church, we're told, is not organized or administrated according to any of the ways of the world. The Holy Spirit made certain men its overseers and told them to shepherd the church. The Holy Spirit administrates the church by giving to it gifted men who pray and seek his leading and guidance and then step forward and lead and guide them in dependence upon him. And there's always a, uh, a I don't want to call it a fight, uh, but there, there's always a pressure because we live in the world and we're familiar with methods and methodologies in the world to use worldly methods in the church when God would have us abandon many of those and just follow him spiritually. Hey, if the church does business, it should do good business. It should do the best business. It should keep the best records. It, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you really go about making decisions. Are they really led by the Spirit? Are they prayed over? Are you seeking the Lord through his word? Are you seeking a consensus? Or is it by some kind of lobbying? Is it almost a political thing? How many of you are tired of some of the political uh, you know, commentary and, and, all, and, and the politics in general? It's a necessary part of the world, but it has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. What has a place there is the wisdom of God, the leading of God, the humility that we have in seeking that. God's church is important to him. It's where those whom he died for and purchased with his blood come together to be refreshed and encouraged and blessed and then sent out. Now, shepherds and the flock are depicted here as out in the field and therefore in danger of vicious predators. Take heed to yourselves is a warning that many of the attacks will be directed against the shepherds. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered and more vulnerable. And so what I would say to you here is you need to be praying for the leadership of this church every day, twice a day. How about you get rid of your other prayer list and just pray for us? No, I'm just kidding. But you really pray because uh, that's just the way it is. There's nothing, you know, we're all equal spiritually. We're just gifted differently. But in this metaphor, if you attack the shepherd or the shepherds, the elders, the deacons, then the church is more vulnerable. And so pray for your leadership every day. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Some would attack from outside the flock like wolves attacking a sheepfold, but others would be right in their midst. I often have wondered in this text if some of the men that Paul was addressing fulfilled this prophecy. 
and what a sad thing that would be. Church seems to be a very dangerous place. Maybe you shouldn't really be a part of a church. Well, that's not really an option. If you stay within the metaphor, the predators will pick you off even easier if you're alone and without the protection of shepherds in the flock. Paul's just being realistic. He was a realist. I don't know if to him the glass was half full or half empty, but he was really says, hey, the church that Jesus loves, it's like a flock and, and flocks are subject to predation and it's going to be a dangerous place. You're going to be able to identify some wolves. Some of the danger is going to come from within. And anybody who has the idea that I'll just stay away from church, well, then you're just going to get rid. You're just like, imagine a sheep all by itself. Uh, hey, why attack the shepherd and the sheepfold when you can just pick off the weaker sheep that's all by himself? And this is what cracks me up in a sad way about Christians who don't attach themselves to a church. They think of themselves as stronger because of it as more mature, I don't really need the church. But in the analogy of the sheep fold, that is a weak, lost sheep who needs to be found and protected because they're out in the world in an unprotected way. Predators are described a little in verses 33 through 35. Skip there, uh, to there right now. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul used himself as an example so they would recognize the predators by comparison. They would be men who took advantage of God's people for their own personal gain, often a financial gain. Now, in other passages, Paul teaches that it's okay for a missionary or a minister to receive support. In fact, it's really better for the church. His point here is to contrast himself to the predators that were coming. He labored tirelessly, always putting the ministry first. He was all about the flock. The predators would put themselves first and be all about taking advantage of the generosity of the believers. This is why in the first century they had uh, rules uh, they had certain periods of time. As if a traveling teacher comes and he wants to say, I think it's more than two days, then he's a false teacher. All he wants to do is live off of your gifts, and so don't listen to him. And so we have our own modern-day application of this in the many uh, ministries that uh, are asking you all the time for money. You send in your prayer request with the most generous gift that you can give. And sadly, in some cases, they've documented this in, in various exposés. Sometimes your prayer request gets thrown away, and all they really wanted was the check. Uh, and I remember one ministry, I, I can still see the documentary where they, they just opened it, here's the check, and everything else went in the trash. And when confronted, well, we just generally pray for everybody. And, and so we want to be careful of these things. Now, Paul mentioned some words of Jesus that do not appear anywhere in the Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus did and said a lot of things that aren't recorded for us. We confine ourselves to those that are recorded for us because we know that they are the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. There's a bunch of stuff out there, Gospels of Thomas and Mary Magdalene and uh, anecdotal stories of Jesus as a little boy healing the wings of birds and things like that. Uh, just leave all of that alone. This saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive, has made it into the canon of Scripture. Luke brings it in, and it is part of the inspired text. 
Uh, my favorite non-canonical, non-scriptural saying attributed to Jesus is cleanliness is better than godliness, uh, which a, uh, a lot of people think is uh, in the Bible. Uh, it's not. Neither is Jack Nicholson. <laughs> How do we protect ourselves from the ever-present danger of predation? Well, go back to verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The first line of protection is the leadership of the local church. They must, among their other duties, watch and warn, and they must do it around the clock. Earlier, the tears Paul shed were for his personal trials. Here they are shed for the flock. The tears were in the context of his warnings, and so it seems to mean that he cried over the ruin or the potential ruin of the lives of those who would not heed God's warnings. And, and I, you know, maybe not publicly, but I've done this because you, you see people, you've done this in the lives of people that are dear to you. You, just, you, know, they, you see them walking with the Lord, and then they start to make decisions that are contrary to the Word of God. They start to veer off maybe even just a little, they stray from that path, and you, you try to warn them gently at first and then stronger and, and because you know that their life, their spiritual life, is headed for ruin, and the ruin of that life is a, is a terrible thing. It, the ruin of that life means the ruin of a family and, and, and of relationships between father and children, mother and children, and those kinds of things, and it brings a weeping to your soul and sometimes physically as well. And so here we have a picture of your leaders. They're men who watch over you 24-7. They're subject to severe trials on account of the ministry. They're first in line uh, to defend against vicious predators whom they must battle using only spiritual resources like humility. And whether they visibly cry all the time or not, they always have plenty to cry about. Hey, where do I sign up? It, it's not for the faint-hearted. Paul does give them a word of encouragement in verse 32. He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. These men and God's church through them have the word of his grace. Word here doesn't refer only to the Bible. It means they have God's personal promise the way we would say you give someone your word. Only in this case, it is God giving his word and he is infinitely faithful to keep it. God has given them his word that grace will build them up while they remain shepherds on earth. They can count on a sufficient supply of every necessary spiritual resource to accomplish their work in the church. God's grace will also give them an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. It's just another way of describing the church on earth. We are those who have been saved and then set apart as God's own dearly beloved. The shepherds are part of that sanctified group and can count on a special inheritance when they get to heaven for their faithful service. They just have to show their clergy card. I do like the special clergy parking at Hanford Community Hospital. It's kind of cool. I never take advantage of it unless it's an official function. But anyway... One final snapshot is, actually, I never park there because they don't recognize me as a pastor when I get out of the car. And I'm always afraid I'm going to get arrested. So one final snapshot is given in verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. They accompanied, to, uh, accompanied him to the ship, excuse me. Some moments are more emotional than others. They, they just are. 
all moments among the saints should lay groundwork for those few moments that are more emotional. What I mean by that is simply this. We should be growing in our love and respect for one another as those who are beloved of Jesus Christ so that if a moment like this came where there was a separation or some, some big event, this kind of emotion would be evoked, that, that there was a genuineness to our feeling one for another. Uh, one of the scriptures that, um, you know, it just it gets to you is, is Jesus, you know, at that time, he wasn't giving his mother and his brothers their, their due, uh, and, and he looked out and he said, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? And, and it's a reminder that, you know, in many cases, whether you're in the ministry or not in the ministry, you've left your natural family, your physical family. Uh, they don't understand. They, they don't comprehend. Uh, worse than that, they're antagonistic to the cross of Jesus Christ. They have a suspicion that you might love Christians in a different way, not necessarily more than them, but with some kind of a love that, that is lacking between you and them. And that's true. There's a spiritual love. There's an agape love. There's the love that God sheds abroad in your heart that only a Christian can understand. And so we have an obligation to be in this kind of love with one another. And every now and then something happens where that love can be genuinely expressed. And, you know, it, it just wells up in the heart. Now, when you get saved, you are set on a custom-designed course that will take you through this life on earth to heaven with the greatest possibility of growth and reward, custom-designed obstacle course. And when it seems that it is an obstacle course, it is. And so stay on course. Your course always involves participation in the church, in relationships with other believers. In your church, shepherds watch for your soul as they feed and lead you through many personal and public perils. Race and graze in grace. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for these things. In a way, it's uh, sad, but it's also quite moving to see the Apostle Paul kneeling and weeping with the elders of this church. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be familiar with that kind of love that is shed abroad in the heart of a Christian. Our love one for another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That we with all humility, Lord, would run the race that you've set before us. When it's a sprint, when it's a marathon, when it's over a long distance, when it's an obstacle course, that we would press on until we get to you at the finish. And I pray for our church, Lord, this particular uh, part of the body of Jesus Christ, that we would navigate the dangers, uh, Lord, that when predators come from without and from within, that you would draw us together rather than scatter us, that you would protect the leaders of this church as they seek to protect the church, and that together, Lord, we would graze in green pastures drinking of your living water and then go out and minister to a lost and dying world. Refresh and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Beloved's banquet tickets are on sale in the bookstore. Uh, go over there and grab yours. Limited seating as usual. Cafe is open. Spend some time in there. Some of the greatest coffee in the world awaits you in there. You know I'm a kind of a coffee aficionado, whatever that means. 
and uh, th- we just serve a great product in there. So get over there and have some fellowship. Stop by the chapel store, say hi to the staff. Wednesday morning, our men get together at 6.30 in the cafe. Wednesday night, our Ignite service. May God bless you, amen.